Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today, we've got some interesting guests. We have J.F. Martell, who is a writer and podcaster. He writes on art, culture, religion, and philosophy. He's got a website at reclaimingart.com, and he's got a book called Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice. And we're going to be talking about that concept some today. He has a podcast, which he co-hosts with Phil Ford, called Weird Studies. That's an interesting name. Our second guest is Michael Garfield. He's a transmedia artist and performance philosopher. Now, what the fuck a performance philosopher is, I don't know, but I'm sure we'll find out here today. I do know he's a musician, an illustrator, and a painter. And he has a truly fascinating podcast, lots of cool guests on it, including yours truly, called Future Fossils. Check them out. Welcome, guys. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, the topic we're going to talk about today is something at the intersection of technology and art. You know, what is that interaction about? And, you know, I think the original thing that spurred me to reach out to Michael and say, hey, let's do a podcast was him musing about what effect would things like Dolly have on art? What is what is NFTs doing to art, et cetera? And while we don't need to stick to that, it might be a place to start, you know, kind of the intersection of technology and, and art. Who wants to go first? Well, I mean, we might as well start with, I think the the post in question, the Facebook post that you replied to and invited me onto your show was one of several that I've been, conversations I've been prompting on social media lately, just to in, invite more conversation about the sort of double-edged sword here of all of these sophisticated new tools. You mentioned Dolly. I, I was just playing over the weekend with an invite to Midjourney, which is another one of these really powerful AI art programs. But of course, like AI art is sort of like the term social distancing or something like it's it, it kind of, you know, depending on how you define those words, it, it does or does not make sense. And I think, you know, we're early enough in the conversation. I want to, I want to, pay tribute to a piece that I, I know I sent you all by Eric Howell, who's, you know, a, a fascinating author and, and scientist and an interesting boundary crossing person that I vibe with, who recently, you know, wrote a, a, a piece citing Walter Benjamin and the, the, that essay, the, you know, art in the age of mechanical reproduction, as well as Tolstoy and others talking about how art that is not created by a conscious agent isn't really art that the that this this new emergent field of promptism where you're you're giving text based prompts to these generative adversarial networks that have learned how to style transfer from you know enormous data sets of different artists that they've been fed that the, these are not really you know they may be on in his most optimistic scenario a kind of complex paintbrush that can be used then as raw material or a substrate, like it may never get good enough to effectively become indistinguishable from the work of master artists. But that's that seems to Eric and myself and lots of other people kind of naive assumption that it's never going to, you know, that, that, and, and so like, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking a lot about this kind of relatedly in, in 2017, when Adobe first announced that they were capable of cloning the vo the voice print from someone with only 20 seconds of audio recording and that you could then write text and then have the computer speak it in the voice of anyone you wanted. And so I actually, while I was in uh, Montreal that summer, I started writing a short story called An Oral History of the End of Reality about the, the epistemic shock of complete failure, like the loss of the arms race against 
digital counterfeiting technologies and, and what that would mean to us psychologically and, and culturally. And so I've been thinking about this stuff for a very long time and its effects on the labor market and, and so on. And I just, you know, as someone who has already at 38 lived through a, pro- a profound amount of technological change and the impact that it's made that I've observed on my own career and the careers of many, many other artist friends. It just seems like a really important topic now to try and get a, you know, get, we, we can't really get ahead of this, but we can try to stay on top of the wave as best we can and not get sucked under. And the, you know, the question of, of how these technologies are not only changing the way that we do business with one another, the way that we express ourselves, but also the way that we understand the self, the way that we, that we understand what it is that humans are good at, like what, what is it we uniquely do if we do uni- anything uniquely? And that, that itself is an interesting question. So yeah, that's kind of the bundle of ideas that I've been trying to juggle and, and explore in discourse with people. Yeah, well, very obviously interesting and timely. JF, what do you have to say about all this? Well, uh, I actually joined the mid-journey Discord last night, so I got to experiment <laughs> with this um, this newfangled AI that's able to generate what to me seemed like, looked like genuine works of art of varying levels of quality. But the point is, some of them were actually quite striking and haunting. So I did get the sense that this thing was generating art. But then, of course, the question is, what is art? You know, And how we define the term will have a huge part to play in whether we ultimately decide that what computer software or neural network can generate is art or not. And I'm really reading this whole kind of historical moment, this emergence of the AI artist, as an indicator of where we're at epistemologically in our culture, how we think of ourselves and our relationship to reality, what we think consciousness is and where its locus is. All these questions that are metaphysical and and extremely, of course, extremely complex and, and very ancient questions play into this discussion, I think. And ultimately, also, I think that one of the most urgent aspects of the problem have to do with economics, politics, and power. How do these systems co-opt, to use a a word from Jim's generation, (laughs) how do these systems co-opt certain processes which were at one point owned by the human, you know, that they were, they came from the human and suddenly we're seeing machines do what we thought only we could do. It's a bit, you know, reminiscent of the moment where Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov at chess, right? It kind of occasions a kind of existential crisis where we have to rethink certain assumptions we had about what constitutes the human and what constitutes human creative activity, yeah. Of course, this is not the first time we've confronted this this question. If you look back in the history of art, there was a great kerfuffle about photography, right? Exactly. You want to say, what the hell is this, right? And then there was another gigantic kerfuffle about recorded music. And if we go back further, famously, Socrates was highly dubious about writing, right? He thought that this was a corruption of the art of philosophy, the art of literature, the art of drama. And of course, it was about 400 years after the adoption of the, the greatest innovation of the Greeks, which was the Phoenician alphabetic language model. And there was huge amounts of controversy. So this is not by any means a new question. And as I was thinking about it a little bit, there's sort of a, one distinction that might be useful, and that's the distinction between artifacts facing. Is there a word for that? Must be making an artifact. Artifice, yeah. Artificing and discernment, right? So in some sense, one is artificing, making something. But, you know, a lot of stuff artists make, they throw out, right? How many sketches does a visual artist make for each one he turns into a painting? Depends on the artist. Some make a lot, some make a few. And so there's that intersection between making and discernment. And then there's discernment itself, right? I actually uh, ran, and my wife asked me, what the hell are you going to be talking about today on your show, right? And I said, oh, blah, blah, you know, art and technology. And, oh, that's a really interesting question. She's a professional art photographer, amongst other things. And so we had a little back and forth. And I said, yeah, for instance, suppose I programmed my dro- one of my drones and sent it on a 30-minute mission and randomly had it take a 1,000 photographs of stuff in the mountains near where we live, 
and I gave it to you to go through and pick the two best images. Is that art? And she goes, hmm, that's a damn interesting question. And she came down with the answer that, yes, the result would be art because ah. uh, the discernment was worth, you know, and again, she had never thought about this question in quite this way. So I'm going to turn that question back to you guys, your relationship between discernment and making, artificing, artificing. JF. It's a fascinating question. I actually just wrote an essay about this for a photography book that's coming out in a few months by Shannon Taggart. She's an amazing photographer. She's revived the old genre of spirit photography. So she concentrates on taking photographs of things like spiritualist seances and that sort of thing. If you've seen the old Victorian photos of, you know, dubious photography of the of the spiritualist movement of the late 19th, early 20th century, she's kind of exploring that as an artistic project. And at the in this essay, I came up with this thought experiment where you take a great painting, for instance, you know, Van Gogh's last painting is the one that I use, the one with the crows flying over the wheat field, which is obviously a, a beautiful and powerful piece of art. And uh, I was imagining, instead of that painting, coming upon a photo that was taken either by a camera, you know, working automatically, or maybe by a child, or maybe a photo taken by mistake, but which coincidentally was identical to the painting had the crows, the wheat field, the path, all the elements of the painting would be rep we would be present in this random photo. So the question is all the meaning we extract from the painting would we be able to extract that meaning from this random photo which is identical to the painting? Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the answer is obviously yes, one could extract all that meaning, the symbolism of the crows, of the wheat, of the the light of day, the falling light. You could uh, come up with a symbol intimating death or transience or whatever it is that people have read in Van Gogh's painting. But of course, the one missing element is the discernment part. But to me, that's hardly an argument against the photo, the accidental photo being art. To me, that's an argument that our, the world somehow is constantly producing artful moments. That's what Jung called synchronicity. Whether it's intended, it's intended or not, we're constantly living through moments where divergent and disparate causal series that have nothing to do with one another suddenly converge to produce a moment of meaning. In a sense, you could see the human being itself as, an, as a synchronistic event in the history of the universe, if you want to be a materialist. Because we have, we have, we're meaning making and meaning discerning creatures in a world, I'm putting on my secular filter right now, in a world of blind material interactions. So that, that the AI might be able to generate art and that the AI might even be able to discern to a certain extent based on art theory as we know it, because no doubt these algorithms include commands that ensure that what comes out of the AI will respect certain traditional rules of composition and stuff. Well, then, yes, all that is possible, not because robots are, are, are natural artists, but because the world as such has a weird tendency to produce meaning-making and meaningful events, strangely. So to me, I was looking at this mid-journey, this AI generate all this imagery. And what I was seeing, the closest analog to what I was seeing was dreaming, you know, this constant generation of meaningful, if sometimes absurd imagery out of this kind of imaginal depth that contains perhaps in a sense, all possible imagery that seems, we seem to have been, we seem to have given material form to the dreaming, to the act of dreaming. And that's something important, I think. It's something meaningful. But, but when it comes to art, we really have to have a careful discussion about what we mean by art in that sense. So does that put you down on the side of discernment as, in other words, the computer might generate a bunch of stuff that adheres to artistic traditions and statistical similarities about color balance and things of that sort. But it's not art until somebody says this is meaningful and tags it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the real question, and then I'll throw the ball to, to Michael here. Uh, the real question ultimately is it could, we, we can, we can create an AI artist. Could we create an AI art critic? Could we create an, an AI art appreciator? That's the real question. 
And of course, the, in the AI world, we have this idea of generative adversarial networks, the idea where you have one that creates and the other that criticizes or attacks, right? Yeah, and that's built into the process, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. they get better. And of course, you need a scorer. So for instance, you'd still have to get some humans in the loop to say, this is good, this is bad. But eventually, you could train up that critic to be better probably than a crowdsourced mechanical Turk evaluation, at least. And does that mean he's an actual critic, that particular neural net? Uh, it's a good, very interesting question. Well, I mean, it's a net, it's a recursive sort of endless regression. Uh, I mean, because then, you know, you say, okay, we've trained these, these GANs to, to create and to critique one another. And again, that's that speaks to the arms race between counterfeiting and forensics analysis. And then you have, oh, well, we need a human on the loop to evaluate the performance of those opposing networks. And then you, you know, the, you, when you say, okay, but you know, it may be better than a human critic, we get back to, I mean, it's, it's a constant return to this question of, well, who's determining that it's better. And, and, and you know, JF, it's funny that you, you bring up the AI art critic, because in fact, I recently did see a, a project that was trying to train AI to create automated product reviews for products that, of course, the machine has never actually directly experienced. So, I mean, that's a very interesting and surreal path that we're on. I just want to note, because I was thinking quite a bit about the process of, of criti art criticism when, when you brought up discernment, and I was reminded of this passage from The Power of Myth, where Joseph Campbell says, uh, I'll just read this quote real quick. In India, I have seen a red ring put around a stone, and then the stone becomes regarded as an incarnation of the mystery. Usually you think of things in practical terms, but you could think of anything in terms of its mystery. For example, this is a watch, but it is also a thing in being. You could put it down, draw a ring around it, and regard it in that dimension. That is the point of what is called consecration. That's the power of myth, page 74. And of course, this, you know, this, the ritualizing, the consecration, I know that, you know, uh, JF, you and Phil have talked about this in terms of the magic circle created by a boxing ring or by the the suspension of disbelief that one performatively and ritually engages in when you enter a, a cinema house you know that there are these these spaces and we organize our lives episodically by moving through space in from one place into a different place and that is how we decide to treat one situation with a separate set of rules, uh, you know, the, we, we, we enter this conversation with uh, a kind of an implicit understanding of, of what it means to be in the ring with one another as conversants here. And, you know, so when it comes to this question of discernment, you know, I think, I, I think it, this whole thing is very, I'm glad you said a human on the loop, Jim, because the whole thing really is quite, quite synonymous with the question of automated weaponry, and you know drone strikes and then is there someone in a you know an, an, a sophisticated military arcade somewhere in the united states that's approving and denying requests by the drone to actually fire its weaponry or is the drone acting autonomously and if it is then who's responsible like one of the most interesting art projects i've ever seen with with ai is i'd have to take a moment and look it up and um, but it was a machine that was it was like a robot that was installed in an art museum and was using cryptocurrency to order illegal drugs over the dark web and have all the right, drug, have, like have the drugs mailed to the museum and the 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 project was all about who's accountable for this illicit drug purchase right like <laughs> like my robot bought drugs and this is the problem that we think we're generally facing with society now where, you know, the, if, if, as it happens, the order of the first and second search result in a, you know, when you, when you ask Google for information on a political candidate can swing an election up to 25%. And so these search companies are at least in theory capable of rigging an election in such a way that when they're found out for having this kind of influence, they can basically punt the blame to a rogue employee who can be washed out of the company. And the question of who actually was responsible for that algorithm becomes this sort of, you know, vertiginous mystery. And, and so, yeah, again, I just think, you know, there's a, there's this relationship between 
the question of the the modern self, like I am choosing to author my own value systems, I am making decisions, and this sort of postmodern algorithmic self that people like Yuval Harari have said is the new religion of Silicon Valley, which is that I'm just a collection of of you know automata. I'm just a, you know a set of algorithms interacting with one another, and that there really is no free will through that lens there's you know there is no agency and so in that sense there's you know we we have to take a much more nuanced stance on you know what do we even mean by discernment i don't know there's a lot of different threads there yeah yeah let me, yeah, let me throw back a couple items well, one i just like to point out this because i think it's so funny and scary at the same time we talk about the ais and their coupling with humanity what's the strongest current coupling with ai i think it's one people don't even think about it's the algorithms in the dating apps right it's <laughs> literally controlling evolution at this point <laughs> if that is now the number one way people meet which i believe the statistics say that it is some ai trained up on something forced some purpose that probably has nothing to do with anything other than making money is now driving the evolution of the human race. Isn't that interesting, right? And it's probably a really stupid AI, but nonetheless, it's deeply coupled to who our civilization is going to be. Now back to, and people never think about that, but the AIs are already controlling our evolution. God damn it, motherfucker, right? The singularity <laughs> has come and gone. It's come and gone, exactly. <laughs> I've seen that argument. Now, the next one is about this idea of discernment, and I like your, your example of the red ribbon wrapped around a rock or something. And, you know, this is the idea of, you know, found art, you know, like classically described in art history books, you know, Duchamp and his toilet. Right. That's a good example. There's been many of them since then. And, you know, again, it's kind of getting very meta. Right. Or what's the one? This is not a hat or something. Or this is not a uh, pipe. Or I don't remember. Another one of these, yeah. you know, this, you know, just sort of fucking around art as fucking around at some level. At least those Philistines like myself would say that, you know, it's like I, as I tell people every time I go to New York, my wife and I always like to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and, you know, wallow in, uh, you know, 4,000 years for the greatest art uh, ever created. And then I walk into the goddamn modern art wing and I want to pull out a machine gun and just start shooting. I go, what the fuck is wrong with the society and call that shit art, right? Well, the CIA is responsible for for American modern art. I mean, they're Abstract expressionism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they were, they promoted this as part of the, 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 you know, info warfare against, they wanted to make America look like a, a you know, a, a creative superpower and that the, our culture was emblematic of our, our, you know, our, our superiority. And so they, they were the ones that were, that wrote, that took Jackson Pollock and gave him a career and, you know, put all these shows together across Europe. And so, I mean, that's when you when you look at a Pollock and you say there's no there's no signal here that's just noise. It's actually that the the signal is this this the the man behind the curtain of Pollock's success. As far as I'm concerned, it's it's that what we're actually looking at is a kind of a noise attack against the reasoning of of the you know, the Russian art scene and and I don't know it's yeah anyway well, that's interesting it's I'll get to tell you a little story here as you know I love to tell tales I had lunch with the leading critic or evaluator of Pollock right and we uh, chatted quite a bit about Pollock and his art and how you know how did you authenticate a Pollock and he told me it took two months to authenticate a Pollock that was worth a hundred million dollars from a fake that was worth a hundred. And of course, I'm cynically thinking, well, fuck, right? Uh, there's something seriously wrong with this picture. If it takes the world's leading expert two months to tell up if a $100 fake is, it, whether it's a $100 fake or a $100 million real, why would I not just get the $100, $100 fake, right? And have whatever effect comes from that artifact. And, you know, as uh, Michael knows, I lived in Santa Fe for many years, one of the leading art markets in the world. And my wife and I did collect art, but we did it in a very Philistine fashion. I'd you know, tell people, yeah, I'm willing to pay about $500 a square foot, right? And, and they'd say, well, you know, well, what about really great art? And I go, yeah, I'll pay 50 grand for a Vermeer, the, you know, the original, right? Hmm. And they go, what? And to my mind, you know, I don't really give a shit if it's an original or not. I know there's in, in the philosophy of art, there's this big question of, is it the original? It's somehow important. I think that's utter horseshit and that if an identical Vermeer 
that could be had, I'd happily hang it on my wall and would think it just as nice as having the actual Vermeer. And this idea of the actual artifact to my mind is bizarre and fetishistic. And the whole art scene have gotten itself all whipped up into a frenzy about this stuff, you know, strikes me as crazy. You know, it's kind of like $160,000 for Elvis's comb or some goddamn thing, right? So anyway, uh, uh, Michael and Michael, I've been rattling on. JF, your turn. Yeah, well, I'm just going to stay with what you've been saying because I think it's really interesting and important part of the the problem. It's uh, the problem of the authentic artwork, right, as opposed to the counterfeit. Now, you said you'd be just as happy to have a fake Vermeer that's identical to the original as you would to have the original. And I understand what you mean by that because you would be getting all the art. It would all be there already. So why would you have to buy the original when you can get a perfect replica? And that's a that's a valid point when you consider the art from the symbolic end of the art spec of of, of the kind of axis of what art is. At, at one end, art is imaginal, but but using that word, I mean that it's an image that resonates with meaning in a in a multivalent and ambiguous way. I think that's one. It's it's true of all artworks. It, it invites exploration, interpretation questions. And yet at the same time, it seems to be expressing something positive in some way. So if we if we look at that end of the art axis, then of course the fake for me is just as good as the original. But if you look at the materiality of art, that's the other thing. And that's what Walter Benjamin is writing about in his famous uh, essay on uh, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. The materiality of art, or more specifically, the historicity of art, the fact that art came at a specific time, the fact that that image, whether it's the fake or the original you're looking at by Vermeer, that that image emerged at a specific time from a specific subjectivity, experiencing some a specific confluence of, of, of reality at that moment, and such that he felt or he was driven by this need to express this particular image, that's also an important aspect of what art is, I think. And that's what gets, that's what gets lost in the idea of AI art. AI art comes out of a null time. And I think that it, it comes out of a pure logical time. For instance, I'll give you a, 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 an analogy that might be useful. A famous Jorge Luis Borges story, The Library of Babel, right? One of my favorites. That's a good yeah. one. Wonderful, mind-blowing story about an infinite library in which there's an infinite number of volumes and each volume contains a completely random combination of the 22 letters of this fictional alphabet, plus a few other um, uh, syntactical or orthographic symbols like a comma, period, that sort of thing. So if you consider a finite number of letters, a finite alphabet, and an infinite library, that means that library will contain not only every text that's ever been written, but every text that could possibly be written. So everything has already been written in this infinite library, which, since it's infinite, does not exist in the space-time we know. It needs to be some kind of eternal space-time that Borges is imagining here. So it's in the space of pure logic, all books have already been written. That's a, that's a fact. In fact, somebody actually came up with a computer version of the Library of Babel, and I found entire paragraphs from my book in that in that software or whatever on that website. I can't remember the web address, but perhaps someone on your crew can 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 locate it. It's pretty amazing. So, in other words, every book has already been written. It's true in the space of pure atemporal logic. All these things already exist, and AI is AI art is just another version of that. You have a finite number of pixels, a finite uh, color spectrum. Therefore, every painting could potentially emerge out of this AI, and in a sense, already exists, and it's potentially in its in its makeup. So, the question at that point, the question of historicity, that other axis of art, the part where art is about what was said, what was shown at this one time in history becomes super important. And the abolition of history, which we're all living through now, the abolition of time under kind of the techno-capital kind of uh, everything all at once thing that's going on right now, is making us, I think, forget that important dimension of human subjectivity, which is that we exist in time and in history. And uh, that art has to, art gained all its meaning from its historical or its finite 
uh, nature, that it emerges and dissolves in time. And so if you let go of that axis, that pole, then yeah, everything becomes art and also all art has already exists. It's, it's, it, it becomes in a sense meaningless. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to push back on because this is one of my favorite topics that I hate is fucking infinity, right? <laughs> uh, you can go down a rat hole of fuckery once you bring infinity in. And fortunately, as far as we can tell, we do not live in an infinite universe. And if I could put on a wager that would be paid off in a billion years on the fact that we can prove we don't live in an infinite universe, I'd make the bet, right? Because you get into all kinds of fucked up situations once you allow an infinite universe. My favorite being Boltzmann Brain. Right. You know, a Boltzmann mm-hmm. brain is a, a brain that spontaneously emerges from quantum fluctuations that's sufficiently powerful to simulate anything you want, including, say, our total visual universe, right? Our 13 billion light year radius universe. And once you entered, not only do we have Boltzmann brains, we have an infinite number of identical Boltzmann brains and an infinite number of identical Boltzmann brains that differ by one bit, right? So get rid of infinity. It just take, leads to absurdities. And then I would also say, very importantly, that even within the finite world, the number of possibilities is so large that you have to bring in things like historicity and discernment. For instance, and this is uh, in a very interesting and basic idea from integrated information theory, a very simple artistic frame, a thousand by a thousand black and white screen has two to the million possible patterns on it. Two to the million is way more than the number of fundamental particles in the universe. Way more, right? And that's just on this very simplest artifact. And of course, if you just start generating static, most of it would look like static on the screen. Uh, Almost all of it would be static. And this, you know, goes to basically the uh, Boltzmann's laws of thermodynamics, right? Which is disorder is vastly more common than order. However, if you let that random number generate long enough, you'd eventually get a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Eventually you get a picture of me. Eventually you get a picture of somebody signing, I love you in cursive. And so the argument from combinatorics, uh, I think, is very misleading. And, and then that, I think that brings I agree us, with you. I agree. It brings with us you. back in a very strong way to your argument for context and historicity. Right. And if it's going to be human art, then tied to something, something human. I, I, I love this. And I, it's a really fertile place. And I'm, I'm glad that the two of you brought the conversation here because I wanted to bring up this piece by W.J.T. Mitchell called the work of art in the age of biocybernetic reproduction, which is a sort of rehashing of Benjamin's concerns in an age of, of computation and, and big data and bioengineering. He talks a lot about Jurassic Park and the Matrix, and consequently, I love this essay. And he says in this essay, reproduction means something quite different now when the central issues of technology are no longer mass production of commodities or mass reproduction of images, but the reproductive processes of the biological sciences. What does it mean when the object on the assembly line is no longer a mechanism, but an engineered organism? And for me, this is where the rubber really hits the road. Because what the the question for me of this reproducibility is a question of the matrix. It's a question of Lilu Dallas being 3D printed in a machine in the fifth element. It's this question of, you know, I, I'm a lot of my writing is motivated by the prompt of, you know, what is it going to mean when you 3D print your babies? And already people are are prophesying that we will start basically raising digital offspring in in the metaverse and that eventually you'll you'll have selected you know out of the thousands of parallel iterations of possible children you'll have selected one that you actually want to you know th- like 3d print with a, and I like they're talking you know they're these I I don't know what to make of this kind of futurism it seems it seems re- relatively appropriated by you know, really strange venture interests. But at any rate, you know, this, Mitchell goes on to say, you know, and, and this is echoed in people like uh, Douglas Rushkoff's work, uh, the book Present Shock, when, uh, you know, everything happens now, talking about this tension between, you know, as, as JF, you're talking about the historicity, the situatedness of these like living, uh, sapient people 
and of a given work created by them. And then this, you know, this other thing, which is, you know, Jim, you're the apparent order that, you know, this sort of uh, pareidolia that we find in, you know, the, the random pattern that looks like somebody's written, I love you in cursive. And Mitchell says later in this essay, my own view is that the present is in a very real sense, even more remote from our understanding than it was at the the time of Benjamin and Picasso and Lenin, and that we need a paleontology of the present, a rethinking of our condition in the perspective of deep time, in order to produce a synthesis of the arts and sciences adequate to the challenges that we face. So earlier you asked, Jim, what what is a performance philosopher? You know, I'm really inspired by and riffing on MIT historian William Irwin Thompson, who I know we, we discussed briefly when I had you on Future Fossils. And Bill pioneered this mode of communication that he said was appropriate to an age of jazz and complex systems and, you know, the, the global technocratic processes that he called Wissenkunst or knowledge art, which was, you know, a way of cutting across disciplines and looking for patterns in the apparent noise of all of these vast and indeterminate uh, systems. And so when I think about what's required here, you know, Bill also said that, that knowledge, that novelty emerges into culture first through the crazies, then the artists, then the savants and the, then the pedants. So he's putting art upstream as, as others do who have noted, you know, the dependence of modern physics on, you know, abstract art and, and on, you know, cubism and the, the multi-perspectivalism that's, that's performed through, through cubism that something must first be conceived in order then to be quantified and, and formalized in a scientific theory. And so if we're, if we are confusing this sort of driverless process of pattern formation with, again, the, you know, the process of a pattern recognition and, a, you know, sense-making to use an, an abused term, then, I, I, you know, I think one of the things in jeopardy here is our ability to navigate the avalanche of collapsed space-time that is, that is set upon us by our, our digital surround, you know, by, by all of these technologies that are, that are extending the horizon of prediction and of memory so far into the distance on either side that we lose the ability to make sense of these patterns. And so, you, you know, you have this sort of this tension that I know, Jim, you and I both have t- spoken about a lot on our, our shows, respectively, between prediction and understanding. And, and you know, you, the better we get at predicting things, the, the worse we get at understanding them. And we can understand things very well, but not be, you know, not be able to use that and leverage that understanding for prediction. And so, again, like I feel like the the machine is a persistent companion with us through all of these these, you know, historical and, po- you know, quote unquote, post-historical moments. But that machine is not just the external machine. It's also the, you know, the, the way that the algorithms are embodied in us. And so I think that there has to be a sort of re- reciprocity there where some, on some level, I want, I want the machine to be able to, to make discriminations, but I, you know, it's, it, it gets back last, last thing I'll just stack on this insane yarn ball of ideas is that you know, I think about the. I, I love this paper, the physical limits of communication, where Michael Lockman, Mark Newman, and Chris Moore write in 1999 that a message transmitted with optimal efficiency over a channel of limited bandwidth is indistinguishable from random noise to a receiver who is unfamiliar with the language in which the message is written. So, I mean, they're they're basically saying, you know, as Edward Snowden did in his conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson, that we may be in fact surrounded by optimally encrypted alien communication that we can't recognize. And so again, to this question of, you know, what does it mean to live in a world that may in fact be more intentional, more artful, more meaningful than we're even capable of understanding. And, and, you know, we recognize it as noise. So it, you know, I I think, you know, a kind of epistemic humility is required here, but anyway, yeah, that's a lot of different ideas. Lots of, lots of cool ideas. I'm going to just going to hand that one over to JF and see what he has to say about all that. Uh, well, I, I, I certainly like the emphasis on time and on our experience of time, because I think that that's kind of central here, because that's 
it's kind of the one thing that the machine doesn't have doesn't have that we get is a kind of finitude in time. And I agree with your reservations about infinity, Jim. But at the same time, if the concept exists, it'll act in the world and it'll have make a difference. Uh, thinking in terms of infinites makes a difference. For instance, like Bohr has a story, and, and I mean. I have to say, I typed out a paragraph of my own work and found it in this on this website. So I know that it wouldn't have come off if, if I hadn't typed it in. That's that's an important point. It's like it generated it because it's possible. So in a sense, but in another in another way, in another sense, if we if we project our minds outside of time, then we we lose the finite, right? So. So we have to bring this whole discussion back into, I think, the finite. It, like, let's say, let's just, I'll just kind of move the goalposts a bit here. Uh, let's say that this AI, let's say that MidJourney had been somehow invented in 1930 instead of 2021 or 22. And in 1930, they got it going and then they started, it started to produce like pre-Raphaelite paintings and and uh, impressionist paintings, and people were like, "Wow!" But then all of a sudden, if it started to to bring forth uh, Jackson Pollock's and abstract expressionism, or, or if you dial it back a bit, go even further back, like Cubism, or all of a sudden we'd be like, "Ah, this this AI doesn't work." But regardless of your personal feelings about modern art, I think that some, at least, modern art is actually quite striking and quite meaningful in some ways and engages in a dialogue that goes back and engages with the tradition that goes all the way back to all the beautiful figurative painting that came before it. The people at that time, the discernment would not be available. We wouldn't, we would think that the program had failed to produce art. In other words, art to me seems to be really about what the new might be, what might come next, where things might go. Like the classical art of Rome could not have, one could not have looked at that art and predicted the the iconography of a Christianized Eastern Rome, right? That was unpredictable. It was completely unpredictable. No one could have gone from the like Roman sculpture to the Roman icon that would emerge within 50 years or 100 years. There's a kind of absolute newness that we see in art, but it's everywhere, I think, in reality. But we really see it in art because art is about touching that, I think, touching what Nietzsche called the untimely. That if we fully go, like if we go fully on board with this AI art stuff, well, these algorithms are completely, they're just looking at the past, right? They're like the angel of history in Benjamin. They're looking at what was. They're building things. They're, they're shifting, they're reconfiguring and rearranging pre-existing materials. Well, you could say that's what every artist has always done. And yet, there's always a moment where a work emerges that people say, well, that's not art. That's not okay. And then eventually we see that yes, it is. It, there's a there's a novelty there that seems to be become very difficult to imagine in this new kind of uh, art as pure technology context. It, it seems to lack lack an element that's essential. Yeah, let me throw something out. See how you react to this of what may be missing, and that is an evolutionary dynamic, right? Which is you know Darwinian evolution throws out lots of random shit called mutations and recombination a lot of it doesn't seem to matter you make a small mutation so called neutral mutation has no effect one way or the other a lot of mutations have are deleterious makes the thing less likely to reproduce successfully and then the rare mutation or recombination makes it more likely to succeed and the analogy i've started to use lately is the garage band right uh, a lot of garage bands really suck but if it wasn't for garage bands popular music would never evolve. It would just be rehashing the same old shit. We'd be hearing the Jurassic Rockers, be hearing somebody once more at a bar playing Amy. Oh my God, I'll put a bullet in my head next time I hear Amy (laughs) in a bar, right? So we need garage bands with their a sort of randomness, but they're interestingly caught in an evolutionary context, which is if you know, the friends and family of the garage band actually like that band a lot. 
and say, hey, this is as good or better than the bands we hear on the radio, then they'll probably get a, you know, a bar gig. And if the bar gig goes well, then they'll go to a, a, a little sh- local showcase and maybe an A&R guy discovers them and on they go. And so there's an evolutionary context that sorts the randomness. We could some level call garage bands almost random creation, right? It just happens to be whoever happens to get together and start banging away on their instruments. But yeah. the, it's the dynamic, it's the evolutionary context which sorts and curates in some community sense, which allows popular music to move forward. I suspect something similar. I don't understand the dynamics as well in the art scene, but something similar must happen in the art scene that steers in some collective co-evolutionary context in towards the future. I think you're right, but there, the, I think that there is obviously a difference because, I mean, you can model it that way, but I think there is a difference. For example, let's look at like the emergence of punk, right? So Punk is not just a type of music. It's a whole aesthetic. It's a whole world. There's a punk world. You can make a world that's punk. We have all these subgenres in, in like steampunk and and clockwork punk and all this. There's something about the punk that it has a kind of essence to it. And it emerged suddenly in the early 70s. Well, it emerged out of materials that were def- definitively and definitely not punk. In fact, it emerges partly as a reaction to those things. But it brings in a whole aesthetic and it, it it also takes in, it takes up and transforms that which came before it. So you'll have the Ramones making writing songs that sound a lot like Beach Boys songs or the early 60s songs, but in this new idiom of punk. But a whole new set of possibilities become possible in punk, right? So the, the sudden emergence of the new in art and culture is, I don't know, it's more... Um, Laplacian, is that the word I'm looking for? Then Darwinian? Is it Laplace? I keep forgetting the other guy's name. It's more Bergsonian, if you're speaking philosophically, Bergson, of the sudden emergence of a qualitatively new situation that simply could not have been predicted before it emerged. And of course, that happens in evolution too, though very infrequently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and in fact, the uh, work at a certain research institute, which we're not supposed to name, is uh, I guess I can on my show the Santa Fe Institute. Some of the great thinkers, Walter Fontana, Jim Crutchfield, amongst them, have modeled the fact that often we would expect evolution to make teeny little changes or no change at all, or even drift backwards and then suddenly discover a portal and go into a whole new thing. I mean, the famous example is a Cambrian explosion where a a certain small number of simultaneous mutations created the neuron, a few other things. And in a remarkably short period of time, every phyla, every basic group of living things that exists today came into existence in maybe as short as 5 million years, which is a ridiculously short time. And it was one of these punctuated equilibriums, as it's talked about. And certainly this happened, and of course, in mimetic, social evolution has the advantage that it's not bound by generations, by chemistry or anything else. And so, you know, big moves can happen in culture very, very quickly. Exactly. But the dynamics, I think, are in some ways analogous. And of course, it's very important not to over metaphorize memetics from Darwinian biology. And I was probably a little bit guilty there in my analogy. And I should have, uh, I should have said, you know, metaphorically, they're very, very similar, that they're contexts which guide movement forward through some filtering process. And I was, I was there at the very beginning of punk, or damn close to it. In fact, my little gang of minor criminals supported one particular punk band. And uh, for a while, we were like the only people that went to the bar where they played and they wrote a song about us and the whole deal. So yeah, you know, we, uh, I, I remember that, that epoch well, and it was, I mean, it was definitely a counterculture, you know, we, we were that and we were not this and it emerged almost instantaneously. So that's an interesting yeah. example. So there's a punk reading of Darwin that's completely different from like a 60s pop reading of Darwin is what I mean. It doesn't just change the way it, 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 it's kind of a seismic change, a genre. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I remember being in high school, it was very important which crew you ran with, right? I was a hippie. But that was much, that meant that I read Darwin very differently from how the jocks read Darwin. So or the like, Anrandians, right? The Anrandians would have had a very different read on Darwin. Exactly, exactly. So it's like how we interpret, how we discern. And so an AI that would be capable of true discernment would have to be able to change. 
the change the criterion of its discernment, change the very foundation on which it performs a discerning act. It would, this is with something that humans seem to be able to do that perhaps machines can do it. But in that case, machines would become like very much like humans. <laughs> yeah, let me scare you a little bit. I had a podcast with one of my favorite thinkers, a guy named Ken Stanley. He's a leader in neuroevolution, but he also wrote a very cool book on open-ended discovery algorithmically called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And the book is basically a attack, a, a broad attack on optimization. And he and his collaborators have come up with a number of technological ways to do things like explore for novelty. It makes a big point. We're not optimizing on novelty. We're exploring on novelty. He calls it open-ended search. And he gives lots of very clever examples of people working in this field. So there are people now who have, you know, are now thinking outside the box and, and, and not using the traditional, okay, let's take the world's history of art and compress it into one giant neural net and have it generate art on demand, right? Kind of the Dali or the mid-journey approach, but rather, you know, sort of inform itself and work with itself and generate new and novel things. And so there are definitely people working on and they, and they make the point that these uh, transitions can occur very rapidly. Once it kind of gets some new attractor, it goes from, you know, state A, you know, let's say generating, you know, Dixieland jazz to generating early 50s hot jazz, which are like, yes, they're sort of the same instruments, but they're so entirely different from a, an aesthetic sense. They're hard to even see how they're related. And you can have those kinds of transitions if you use this computer-based open-ended search, as Ken Stanley calls it. I really recommend that book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, that I, uh, that I love that, that podcast on. It doesn't really scare me because that's exactly what you were just saying about evolution, right? You'll have these spontaneous punctual jumps and leaps and nature is capable of that. And if if we just see these algorithms as extensions of nature, respecting the same fundamental laws, we would expect the same spontaneity given a flexible, malleable, and um, sorry, creative enough system, you would expect that sort of thing to happen. And I think that if we feel threatened by that, we're doomed as humans. We have to give nature a lot of things that we used to reserve for ourselves, right? Descartes was ready. Descartes had a killer theory, you know, for how to make sense of the world, so long as we regarded animals as automatons. Well, he was the worst. He, was, he took us down so many wrong roads. Like we could have a whole podcast on goddamn Descartes, right? He did, but, uh, but he served a very important purpose at his time, I think. And it was very important for, for, for the sanity of Europe that Descartes come around and provide the means of preserving some locus of human agency in what was then an increasingly me mechanical vision, not just of the cosmos, but of the, of the human body. So he was, he was coming in as a kind of savior, I think. And he, and of course there were, all, he created all these problems, but the, the point being that it required him to reserve for the human things that actually exist out in nature. They're out, out there already. And we're seeing that now through our technology. Our technology is becoming naturalized. It's become it's joining nature, or it always was in a sense, but now we're seeing it. Uh, we can't deny it anymore. Yeah, very, very good, very true. Actually, yeah, we could uh, rant. I could rant about Descartes for hours, but if you really <laughs> want to hear me rant, mention Descartes and Rousseau in the same sentence, and my head will explode. But uh, <laughs> we don't. Uh, we don't Let's have keep you alive. Yeah, it keeps me rolling. <laughs> ah, damn it! Right. We don't have a lot of time left, but let's turn to a final topic. Uh, one of the essays that Michael sent me as a primer for this show was about the importance of noise. Mm. And again, with this issue of evolution, whether it's Darwinian or whether it's other forms of open-ended novelty search or whatever, noise plays a big part. Put it over to Michael to, to give us a gloss on how noise and artistic creativity are somehow related. Yeah, I'm glad you took it here because I was uh, just about to bring this this up. This is uh, an essay called The Future is Noisy that was just published at return.life and is a draft of what I hope is the last chapter in this book I've been drafting in public for years now called How to Live in the Future. And this this piece, again, I it really just it's it's not a huge sh jump in topics really from what we've been discussing here because so much of of what the two of you have have just been talking about has to do with this question of the ways that machines do or do not utilize noise 
the way that biological systems utilize noise, at least yet, uh, and and some some people working in machine learning now do. I mean, there's an entire discipline called reservoir computing, where for you know Michelle Gervon gave a great talk about this a few years ago. That's available to to look up on YouTube, in which I think it's called harnessing the unpredictable. It's a it's a it's a community lecture you can find. Uh, but at any rate, the the talk was about how predicting these these famously chaotic and indeterminate systems like uh, weather that process is improved by not just training the the neural network on the past behavior of that system but injecting noise into the algorithm to keep it from overfitting to its training data. So like the world is always going to defy, like when, when JF, you and Phil on, on weird studies talk about the capital R real and how that's different from the lower case R real, that, that the real in that sense is constantly challenging our models. You know, I know Jim, you've had Nora Bateson on the show and she likes to talk about warm data and she likes to, to philosophically attack the premise that we can ever really adequately model the world, you know, this distinction between map and territory. And we, we, ex- we double the predictive horizon of these weather, pre- of these weather prediction algorithms by training a camera on a bucket of water, kicking the bucket and letting the pattern of waves enter into the machine learning process. And we, so the machine is looking at something that actually, that behaves a lot more like, like, uh, you know, convection cells in the atmosphere. And, you know, this is something that is done a lot. You know, I talk in the essay about Andreas Wagner and his, his work on evolution and the way that the, the sort of the adaptive fitness landscape across which organisms are, are, are always moving where, you know, you're trying to optimize, but of course the, the landscape itself is, is so turbulent and, and what is easy and what is hard is always changing. And it's, it's so many, it's, it's a, you know, an uncountably many dimensional kind of thing that we're describing here, but that, you know, when you talk about challenging optimization, you know, I think about, and in this essay, we talk about play and the way that, that play is the way that organisms who can only imperfectly inherit information about the environment through their genetic lineage are then able to fine tune their instincts and their expectations and so on for an environment that's different from the environment of their parents. You know, so that I think that there is, you know, there is the sense in which if we really want to talk about machines that are creative, machines that issue some kind of discernment, machines that are capable of true novelty, then in a weird way, we come back to the question of the role of the oracle of oracular thinking in, in you know, the process of, of science. Like with JF, when you and Phil had Joshua Ramey on, on Weird Studies to talk about how the, you know, there's, there's something of, of the oracle in the moment of the decision of a scientific hypothesis. You know, the, whole, the rest of the thing is all very rational, but choosing what question to pursue or what question not to pursue is is a moment that you know revolutionary scientists you know down the table always always attribute to a flash of inspiration that they got after taking a walk or a shower or a nap and it's not you know in in some way the way that we navigate the fitness landscape of you know possible fruitful scientific questions or investment decisions or whatever invites the un, the irrational invites noise back into the, the rational process. And so, you know, this is, you know, that's, that's, that's what, you know, that's where I see this really figuring here. Very good. Yeah. Then obviously in the scientific process, that, that, that leap of uh, hypothesis formation is a classic example. We're just, in fact, we're over our time, but that's all right. It's been a fun conversation. I'm going to turn it over to JF for some final thoughts on these themes or whatever else. Well, uh, geez. I feel like we just touched the surface, obviously, of the of the all the issues involved here. We didn't talk about NFTs and the, the other business. Fucking yeah. stupid ass topic, in my opinion, but that's all right. <laughs> we didn't talk about technological unemployment, unemployability, right? Which that's I another think is a key that, piece here. You know? yeah, yeah, the way that this pushes the human again to the periphery and seems to. So there's all kinds of of dangers involved here, but. We have to remember, I think Heidegger was right, you know, the great danger of technology contains what he called a saving power. We have to see what the affordances are here 
and renegotiate our situation. The, the, the problem is that in our, cult, in our culture of absolute distraction, and I think that distraction is more than just a, a, a moment-to-moment problem, and there's a metaphysical issue here going on with how, how time is running away with us and, uh, and uh, almost like a, a severing of some tether that tied us to, to time that's happened. We have to be able to return, I think, to a kind of embodied existence which is less and less obvious to us in the day-to-day because of our dependence on digital tools of all sorts. So I'm really a big proponent of those books and thinkers who are arguing for a return to the organic, I don't like that word, a return to, to... to the analog, let's say. Yeah, there you go. That's the right word. And uh, a, but not not in a luddite rejection of the digital, but o- if only to find our bearings again in the horizoned world of embodied finite existence, such that we can then discern what is going on in the digital oracles that we've created. You know, and I think that this type of discussion is what is going to allow us to to do that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's one of the reasons I live in the mountains of Appalachia, not in Silicon Valley. I don't want to be surrounded by all that goddamn conventional wisdom. It's also why I used to take six months of sabbatical from social media each year. This year, I ratcheted up to nine months, right? Wow. Uh, Listening to people started April 1st and will run through January 1st, uh, 2023. Listening to just that shit, blah, 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 blah. The war for our attention is just not good for doing serious thinking. God damn it, right? It's not. So anyway, gentlemen, this has been a wonderful conversation. And as you both indicated, we just tipped our little pinky into a very deep pool here. And it might be fun to have you guys back and continue this discussion at some point. So J.F. Martell and Michael Garfield, thank you very much for uh, appearance on The Jim Rutt Show. Thank you, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.